Lexus Absolute Rally, powered by the Kielder Works team. Cordless tools tailored for the world of motorsport. Hello everyone, welcome to Absolute Rally, episode 9, season 22. One more to go before we have our little holiday and our little break. And right now, personally, I can't wait. How about you, Ryan Champion? Oh, I don't know. It's so good to talk to you again, Tony. <laughs> it's so, not. Yeah. Don't lie. That's just fibs. Fibs. I tell you, I, I, I'm so glad we're not. It's not just you and me this week, by the way, because we've got, to me, a little bit of royalty. And I feel really uncomfortable because, to me, um, everybody knows Millie as Millie, but I can't call Millie Millie because it always feels really awkward. So, John Millington, welcome to Absolute Rally. Thank you very much. I don't know who you were talking about then, but uh, thank you. <laughs> no, well, do, do you know what? It, genuinely, me calling you Millie feels like calling a teacher by their first name. No, no. Go ahead, go to <laughs> If you call me by John, I don't answer nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> I could well imagine. Well, yeah. uh, obviously, we, we've, we're, we're, we'll start where we are at the moment in the sense of, obviously, now 18 months retired, John? No, no. Uh, four years. Is it four years? Wow. It doesn't yeah. feel that long. Yeah. I did uh, a year of, sorry, a year and a half of semi-part-time at Embersport when I finished, so... It's just coming up to four years now. Wow, 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 wow! It, feel, it doesn't it doesn't feel that long, but let's be honest with you. Last year seems like <laughs> it seems like a lifetime ago in some ways, and it doesn't really count. But um, that's true. <laughs> you, you you're known throughout the world, obviously, as Millie. Normally, the man in the background on the radio and 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 everything else. But if we can go all the way back to the beginning, before M Sport, and um, before obviously everything else. How did it all start for you, John? Because, you know, ways into rallying were all, always fascinate me. I, mine was somewhat cack-handed. Ryan's was obviously through family and stuff. Where did it all start for you? Um, well, it wasn't through family. There was no family connection whatsoever. But in years and years gone by, and you won't remember this, but if you ask your father, they'll tell you. <laughs> um, there used to be a guy called Raymond Baxter that used to do a radio broadcast of Rally Monte Carlo when it used to start from um, Glasgow and all these other places. And he would broadcast on the BBC. I used to love listening to that, fascinated with all these names, Chambery, Colditurini, all these fabulous sounding names. And um, that's how I sort of first got interested in what this sport was. Um, I have to say, just to sort of deviate a little bit, the first time I actually went to do Monte Carlo Rally, servicing for a friend of mine called Chris Lord, I was so disappointed because we started in uh, Dover, went across on the ferry, landed in Calais and went to this industrial estate and there were like four starters from the UK. And obviously I got this impression in my head of this really romantic, fantastic thing. And this guy turns up in the car, stamps the card and says, right, you can go. And I thought, is this it? <laughs> <laughs> you get a bigger start from a restricted road rally. So, <laughs> but uh, no, that's, uh, that's how I first got interested in it. Um, I then was always fascinated with cars and mechanical things. I hated school. So as soon as I was 15, I left. I managed to get an apprenticeship as a mechanic at Appiada Leeds which was the famous Ian Appleyard at the time. 
And um, I didn't, again, I didn't realize who he was or what he was, but I can remember seeing this Jaguar because they had a Jaguar dealership as well as the um, BMC dealership. And I remember seeing this Jaguar um, XJ120 sitting around and you used to think, that's a nice looking car. And I always remember one day I went into his office, for, I can't remember what for, and I saw these four fabulous looking trophies of like tulip flowers. And it was only years and years later that I discovered that's when he finished the tulip rally with no penalty points and you got a tulip trophy. So that led me into sort of cars and motorsport and things like that. Um, of course, your apprenticeships, your apprentices, one thing or another. And um, 1971, I joined a local motor club. But being a tight Yorkshireman, I joined in January, so I got my full 12 months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was Ilkley District Motor Club. I'm still a member of it now, and that's what got me into motorsport in the in the correct way, if you like. <laughs> now, uh, I I know of you, John, from from your your co-driving days on on road rallies. Now, I want to touch on the road rallies a little bit because we have a lot of. Um, international listeners and and hopefully we have a few listeners from the uk who uh, who have maybe come to us through through wrc or, or certainly modern rallying um but but for many years you co-drove on on road rallies and and just kind of bring to life what what road rallying was like in the uk through you know through the the 70s and early 80s um i think without decrying the sport it was road racing um it was very very quick very long um very taxing in so far as you were at it for sort of 200 miles all night long and basically um you would start obviously entering the event get your maps and i used to always use new maps for every event and i used to buy flat maps because i was always afraid of where the maps were folded, there would be a bend or a junction or something I would miss. So I used to get a flat map so that I didn't have a fold on it. And it would probably, in the height of the motor news, it would probably take me three evenings after work to mark my maps. And I used to do that through getting all the old reports of that, any rally that had used that particular map. And they'd always used to put references of the bad places so you could mark those on. I used to buy John McCuddle's Mac markings, and he used to send you a whole list of Mac markings to put on your map. Plus, I used to obviously speak to other co-drivers, a very good friend of mine, Ian Grinrod, and that. We used to spend a lot of time on the phone discussing, you know, what about this, what about that, and it swapped markings between us. Um, And in my case, I used to do a lot of work on the car, which used to compensate for the fact that I never had a lot of money to be able to pay my share. So in my situation, with like, particularly with Ronnie, um, I used to prepare the car with him, and that compensated for the fact that uh, I, I couldn't sort of, you know, compensate money-wise. Um, you got to an hour to plot the route, and again, you used to do it maybe 45 minutes if you were quick and then join with a fellow, you know, again, in my case, most times it was Ian. We'd go down and check the route together to make sure we got the right route and then you were off. 
And basically, from starting to petrol, there was very, very little relaxation time. But you never knew the, the, the speeds or the averages, etc., because they used this uh, system called target timing, which meant that the clocks could be screwed on to make the sections competitive. But you didn't know that until you got to the end of the section and realised what your time loss was, and that's how they managed to get a result. Um, it did attract a phenomenal amount of spectators, and I think possibly that was part of the ruin of the sport in the end, that you know the number of spectators and the amount of interest it was creating uh, in modern times was just, get, just getting too much. But um, there were lots of little tricks, little things, bits and bats you used to have to do. Um, yeah, the petrol halt normally after about sort of 90, 100 miles, or if it was a longer event, you had two petrol halts where you could recover your time. 30 minutes maximum lateness, if you went over that, you were out or you had to cut to the end. And the worst thing you could get was a fail, and that was either coming the wrong way getting the wrong time at the control or missing the control. Uh, but uh, you, you've drawn the, the picture of the events brilliantly. And like you said, I mean, huge amount of spectators. And, and there was there was huge passion for those for those rallies, though, wasn't there? And, you know, you, you talked about uh, Ron Beecroft there. You, you were well known for creating a great partnership with him. And, uh, you know, it, it was its own type of rallying, wasn't it? It had a huge following. Yeah, tremendous following. I mean, um the first time I ever did the Cool Wendig, I was absolutely bricking it because I thought, you know, it's middle of Wales, really, really tricky, really small, difficult junctions. We'd never been there before. And no word of a lie, I think for the first 50 miles, you damn near didn't need a map because there were so <laughs> many spectators and every junction, every tricky slot that you couldn't miss it. Um, it only became more Difficult later on in the event when obviously people got tired or went home or there wasn't so many spectators that uh, you had to start looking really for slots. And uh, the, uh, the Kill Wendig, funnily enough, still one of the events that, that seems to, to carry on now. You know, that we still still seem to have quite a big road rally following in, in Wales. Whenever I go to Sweet Lamb on a Sunday morning, there's often a few uh, bent escorts driving the other way on a Sunday morning. It's yeah. still going well there. Yeah, I mean, rallying as it was, could never happen nowadays, unfortunately. It's like a lot of things. Uh, time moves on, things change, regulations change, circumstances change. And uh, I'm a great believer of never looking back and saying, you know, we need, we need to bring those days back because it doesn't work. It's like WRC, it's like all these things. Everything's evolving going forward. You always look forward. And, I mean, I've done two or three rallies in Wales with uh, Steve, Steve King, and they're absolutely fantastic. And people are always, oh, they're just as good as the old motoring news. They, yes, they are, in their own way. You're never going to get a 200-mile event nowadays. That's impossible. But these events are just as trying, just as difficult. They still get a result. And the young lads competing now... When they get to my age, they'll look back on these, their events they've done with fond memories like I do on mine. Now, uh, reading reading a map for anybody who's who's good on a map, even just from from doing more and more events, twelve car rallies or, or whatever, it, you know, it's not easy to to read a map accurately, and and it, it bred a whole generation of British car drivers, didn't it? 
it, it did. I mean, you just got to look at, you know, when I was doing WRC, you'd often get together with a small group of people. There'd be Nicky Griss, um, Mike <coughs> Park, um, Alistair Roberts, okay, he wasn't co-driving, but quite a group of people like that, even Chris Patterson. And you sat on about road rallying and reading a map, and the other foreign co-drivers look at us if to say, well, you know, what are they talking about? <laughs> Particularly if you mentioned, you know, a dumb barrel potty that used to really <laughs> and and that obviously led on to stage events then as well because that's that's what we knew was uh, when when they had pace notes on the on the continent when they were practicing rallies of course all our forest rallies here were on the map that's right and you could always tell when it came round to the Lombard uh, a lot of the foreign drivers took uh, British co-drivers uh, because their you know, their own foreign co-drivers couldn't read the map. Um, I was fortunate one year to be part of the Finnish junior team, and basically there was a Swedish, Finnish, Norwegian, and British junior teams all competing against each other, and all the foreign junior teams took British co-drivers. So there was myself, Dave Orrick, and a few other road rally co-drivers co-driving for Finnish guys, uh, because the Finnish go driver couldn't read maps. It's uh, you know what, I, I I I love I love that whole idea of of of, of British co drivers being the kind of go to. And uh, funny enough, I made reference to it only the other week, John. I think it was um, following the last round of WRC. You know when we were when we looked at it, I think there was um, there was Scott Martin. There was Elliot, who unfortunately just split with Gus, but there was Elliot yeah. there. There was, uh, we'll, we'll claim anyway, we'll claim him anyway, Paul Nagel was there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was trying to think, who else? Super was, sub Seb, of course. Seb, Seb Marshall was there as well. And it, yeah. it, it kind of, you know, it, I, I, you know, I made the point on the program a couple of weeks ago where I was saying, you know, all of a sudden we seem to be becoming the go-to again. Uh, which, yeah. which which is great, and you know a lot of you know super you know Seb Marshalls people like that. I'm sure they came from almost from that tabletop kind of thing of being able to do you know navigational events, you know tabletop events and things like that, and you know proper I suppose you know from somebody who's driven co-drivers to me, and I mean this with the grace, it always seemed a bit more anarchy. I think it's probably the best way of putting it because of the, it's, the, it's the definitive detail which drivers are completely and utterly, and I speak for both Ryan and I at this point, even though I know he's co-driven and he'll correct me yeah. in a second. Um, you know, we're just not that on the definitive detail as much as what a co-driver is. And, uh, you know, you, you hear the top guys still today um, talking about the minutest detail that they've, they, they've took. And is that something which which attracted you to it as well, John, as opposed to driving, obviously, apart from the financial side. Did you enjoy that, that the, the finance kind of tight detail? Yeah, I mean, I used to get, a fan, I still do, because I, I still could drive now. I still get a fantastic buzz out of sitting next to somebody who's driving well, um, and you get a good stage time, and you think, well, I've contributed to that, but I can't drive. Um, and it's just, reacting and coping with all the different little instances and things that crop up. I mean, Ryan will back me up on that. He's probably got a hundred stories like this from uh, safari rallies. Uh, There's so many things crop up during an event, and it's how you deal with those to minimize the sort of time loss or the stress or whatever it is. 
and that's the sort of aspect that I really get a buzz out of. Um, I love the preparation work beforehand. Um, I like to do everything I possibly can before I get to an event because my philosophy is there's always going to be something crops up you haven't planned for. So if you've done all your homework, you've done all your preparation work, when that thing crops up, you can deal with it. If you're dealing with aspects that you should have done earlier and the instance that's cropped up, then it becomes a major instance rather than just something you can deal with and get on with the, with the event itself. Do you, think, do you think that's the reason why, you know, coordinator roles are always 99% of the time go to people who've co-driven before? Do you think that's the reason as well? I'm sure. I mean, they always say a coordinator is a frustrated co-driver. <laughs> um, no, I mean, it's for me, the coordination work was doing everything I used to do when I was co-driving, but not sitting in the car. So you were doing, in my opinion, all the sort of groundwork and all the paperwork, all the preparation work, etc., that you would have done. Um, we just weren't sitting in the car. But I do really admire the current co-drivers sitting in these cars. I mean, I've done a few events in WRC cars. And particularly on tarmac, the G-forces are unbelievable. And for them to sit there reading notes, particularly on something, say, Cyprus or Corsica, where there's hundreds and hundreds of notes per stage, it, it, to me, is unbelievable. I really admire them. Were you, were you still around when, um, when Phil Mills jumped back in with Elvin on Corsica? Were you still around then, or had you, had you finished? Because I, I, I thought that was amazing. Yes. No, yeah. I, I'd finished then, but no, I, I thought Phil did a brilliant job. Really did. Yeah. Uh, I don't think he looked too comfortable most of the time, but I think he was really <laughs> relieved at the end. <laughs> I think he was, because I, I speak to Phil quite a bit. But uh, yeah, yeah I, I must admit, I was amazed when he jumped in. I know he's been doing, um, I think he's been doing gravel notes with with with, with, um, with Gwyndaf anyway for Elvin. But yeah, yeah, I must admit, when I seen him jump in, uh, but of all the events to jump in, you, you, you're talking about somebody who's been out of the seat for a long time as well. But I, know. I think I think he had just won the Christmas stages at the time, though, so maybe that's what. For, maybe oh, that's, that's his practice then, Ryan. Uh, yeah, there's nothing like the Christmas stages to get you. Get, get you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when... The only thing in common is they talk a similar language, don't they, up in the northeast? <laughs> John, when was it for you? Because um, obviously, if if we we can go back, you were part of that kind of the mythical world, especially for somebody like me as 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 a you know a frustrated rally fan going back as a teenager and a young boy and stuff like that. You were part of that world, which was to me it was like Narnia, and it was, bo- <laughs> and it was boring. Boring to me was like Narnia, you know, just to hear that word, yeah. you know, it brings so many emotions and memories of rally cars and, and, and different development cars and that's where it all kind of started for you did you go into boredom based on the fact that you were still had aspirations to, to to progress as a co-driver or did you go there very much with the mindset of this is my career path now and i'm going to build my career with within ford motor company um no because how i finished road rallying in 86 and i went to work at red of course, um, you were local to was, me. Yeah, no, it was my friend, yeah, my friend Frank Rowlands and uh, Dave Campion that eventually persuaded me. Um, I was enjoying the road rally, it was fantastic and everything else, but I was absolutely skint. 
No, not a penny to my name. And um, I, I, I needed to move on and do something different. So we won the championship in 86, in 85, sorry. So I decided to move on then uh, in 86 and go work at RED. And whilst I was working at RED, um, <clears throat> the guy who was the coordinator left one Christmas and they sort of said to me when I came back after Christmas, can you do it until we get somebody new? <laughs> and I think even in 2015, they were still looking. So, <laughs> um, and so during that period, um, Borum was working with Ford with the Sierras. So on the, the bigger rallies, all, all the mechanics were going as uh, contractors on the World Championship events for Borum. And they said they wanted somebody to come and look after the tyres, or the, you know, co coordinate all the tyres together, um, which I did. And unfortunately, my first event was Monte Carlo, which I don't think I slept for three days trying to sort that out. But eventually we managed it. And it led on from there. And then um, the coordinator at Boreham was Trevor Roberts. Uh, sorry, Trevor Gordon, thank you for who was working with Jim Porter, and one day Jim said, do you fancy coming and working here? And, <laughs> you know, it took me about one millisecond to think, do I? <laughs> and I yeah. said, yes, bit his hand off. I said, absolutely. And <clears throat> uh, packed up my job at RDD and went down to Boreham to work with Trevor. But what Isn't happened when I got down there, Trevor was already set up. He knew what he was doing and stuff, so... When I got there, Jim says, right, your job is to do all the jobs that Trevor doesn't want to do. <laughs> so that's how I got into it. I mean, there weren't bad jobs. They just, A, he didn't have time to do everything. And B, there were certain aspects uh, of the job that uh, I knew a little bit more about than he did. Um, but, you know, we worked together. And then within about two months of joining, uh, Jim left. And just left Trevor and myself, so that's how I ended up at Borum. Can, can I just, I, I, I genuinely forgot about RED, and that's my bad, but there must have been, <laughs> there must have been, because again, that was another thing as a kid, um, there was two things, because I was into rally and I was like an odd one out from where I lived. Um, there was two things that were important. Nosley Safari Park, because of the, 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 the rally that went through there, obviously, and that's my first rally. And then Witness, of all the places yeah. in the world, <laughs> I got giddy about Witness. Now, Witness, to be fair, has got a, it's got its own unique smell. I think that's the best way of putting it. Because um, it's very close to Runcorn, where ICI was. And Witness has got... Yeah, yeah my, my, my son's nappy smell like Witness. There you go. There's a clue for you. Um, but I was one of the few people I can remember even going past the old RED site. Under the arches? Yeah was for me special you know it was it was like a day out um yeah. for me to get even just look at red and I, I, yeah. as i say jenny i forgot what were the what was that period then so what what drivers were going through the door at that point in red sorry to go back there but i'm just fascinated no, no, by that as well. at all um but when i started like i say it was uh my good friend frank rollers that managed to get me well he taught me into going and um, it was a company owned by Jeff Fielding of MCD, the transporter people. And it was run by, um, uh, oh, do, do, do. I said his name, I'm going to forget it again. Jeff now. Fielding? Yes, yeah, no, um, Campion. 
Oh, Dave Campion. Yeah. Dave Campion, yeah. And we got a contract, or they got a contract, either with Austin Rover to run the Metro. So Austin Rover ran the works cars, if you like, on the World Championship, and then they subcontracted a private team. There was one in Belgium, I think one in Sweden, and one in the UK to run Metros, like on the National Championship, which was um, Harry Toivonen, and um, David Llewellyn. But also, they got the contract at RED to run Didier Oriel on the French Championship. So, just after I joined, I think it was about March time, they said, oh, we need somebody to go out to France to do the recce. Well, I'd never even done a recce in my life. Uh, I didn't speak French, and literally set off with a transit trailer, a, a Recce 6R4, which was a, an ex-works car, so it was a proper factory car, a load of wheels and tyres and a map and a phone number and told to go to the uh, Nîmes exit of the motorway, ring this number at 12 o'clock two days later and somebody would come and meet me. And literally, I, did, I managed to get there just in time and rang this number, and this person came, who was Didier's co-driver, Bernard, took me to this village, and they sort of had this guy who there was going to interpret, and he said, oh, they want the car off, they want to drive it, and, and I'm saying, well, are you sure? Can he drive it? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what they've done is they set up a rally sprint through this village, and quite a few cars were there, and obviously this metro, this metro was the, the focal point of the rally sprint. So I just literally got there, I offloaded the car, and all of a sudden I was bombarded with all this. And it started off a relationship that I'm still firm friends with Didi and Bernard now to this day. I mean, I was speaking to him oh, six months ago, and we, you know, worked together for a year. I did the wreckies, and the wreckies were three weeks long did the rally and then moved on to the next recce, did that for three weeks. And in the meantime, did all the service plan while I was doing the recce uh, because Trevor Roberts was based in Witness. So I used to do the service plan. When he came out, he used to check it, get it photocopied, and then we used to go off and do the event. Wow. Wow. So, fantastic time. I mean, the memories I have from that year, uh, I mean, Frank rollers would come out and spend a couple of weeks with me sometimes preparing the cars we used to go to like the austin rover dealers and prepare the cars and i never came home i came home once i think for um a couple of weeks in summer and then the rest of the time i was down there now it, now you, you moved from from red like you said to, to borum now red was a satellite team with some great programs but how was that move then to borum at the time like a full factory team where you know they had a, a huge infrastructure really at the time yeah um obviously at the end of the first year 86 uh, austin rover pulled out of rallying when the group b thing was finished and um Unfortunately, there's a, a side story to all this. Uh, we were in Corsica doing the Corsica Rally as part of the French Championship in the same hotel as um, Lancia. So when, unfortunately, Henry Toivonen died, um, it was me that had to ring back to RED, to um, Dave Campion, to tell him, to tell his brother who was doing the Welsh Rally, I think, in the Metro. Wow. 
Um, so at the end of that year, when they pulled out of the Group B and Austin Rover stopped, uh, they got a contract with Ford to run the Sierra. And because of the relationship they built up with uh, Didi Oriole and his sponsors, which were 33 Export, the beer company, which is a great sponsor, by the way, um, they continued with the French Championship for another two years using the uh, Sierras. And that's how they got in with Ford. Uh, I think there was three teams from memory. I think there was Mike, Stuart, uh, Mike Little, um, Mike Taylor, and RED running satellite Sierras in the British Championship, uh, either Group A or Group N cars, in alongside the factory team that were running the Sierras and the World Championship. And that's how they managed to get them out. And during that time at RED, that's when we ran Colin in a Group, sorry, Colin in a Group N car and his dad in a Group A car. And Colin had strict instructions not to beat his dad by too much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when did you actually make the switch? What year did you make the switch then from, from RED to, to Borum? Um, about, I think it was about the 90s. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not a big uh, member of numbers. I think it was about 90. Because uh, like I said, I'd done the World Championship with them on the tyres for one year. And then uh, the following year I moved, like January time, to work with them full time. And and I mean, at the time, like like now, we see central service. There's limited tire choice. Um, the, there's only the the trucks that are in the service park. But but then, I mean, what was the ten vans, chase cars, uh, dozens of tire choices? It, there was an awful lot to uh, yeah. to look after, wasn't there? Well, I have to say, I have kept the last year we did Monte Carlo as the full Monte Carlo. I have kept all the paperwork just. I used to use it at uh, M Sport when people used to be, oh, it's this and that. I used to say, right, well, look at that. And literally, you had 10 service vans, 10 tyre vans, uh, three or four tyre restock vans, uh, a parts van. You had um, a gravel crew, but one gravel crew did one stage. So if there was three stages in a loop, you had six gravel crews. <laughs> Sorry. Three stages, you have three gravel crews, and that gravel crew just did that one stage, came back, reported that stage again, that stage again, and then obviously you came out for your second run, that again, that you had that one gravel crew. So you didn't have the one gravel crew doing it all. So you had that complete fleet of those to look after. You had a service crew for them. You had weather crews. You had an aircraft. You had helicopters with the engineers and mechanics in, and you had to refuel the helicopters. Um, the, the list goes on. I, I think it was something from memory, nearly a thousand tyres um, that were available to, to be fitted. And you had wheels for nearly all of them. So to try and manage to get those, to get the choice that you needed at every stage start, and you'd sort of come off the stage, take the tyres off, put treaded tyres on to run down the road section and then put your tyre choice on for the stage at the next stage start. Again, they were all in tyre blankets. In addition to all that, you had tyre cuts to do if they decided they wanted to cut a tyre. Uh, you had to do that. Or the worst job of all was if they wanted to remove some of the studs. Um, the favourite trick was, oh, just take one ring of studs out or 
if you've ever tried pulling a stud out with some pliers in the freezing cold, it's not an easy job. <laughs> um, and, it, it, and it just went on and on and on like that. And not only that, you had to find somewhere to put all this kit, didn't you? So, so you had to do a, a big service recce to even find the the car parks, the restaurants, wherever to to place everything, and and fight alongside Lancia and Toyota and everybody else who wanted that space as well. Yeah, that was Trevor's expertise. He was unbelievably fantastic at doing that job. He would go out and he would spend a fortnight on his own, and he'd drive around, find the spots. And he would draw, I mean, his drawings are famous. He would draw a little plan, like a freehand sketch of what it looked like, because obviously the service crew would be turning up to this place. You didn't have all the facilities, the digital photos, um, mobile phones, all that stuff then. You just had a paper plan. He'd draw the plan. There'd be all the details, all the telephone numbers of the local telephone boxes, the owner's details and his permission, etc. And like you say, it got to the point in so, where there was a really sort of uh, popular place. Uh, the owners used to be charging a premium because they knew all the teams wanted that particular spot. But Trevor, he, he was unbelievable at that. He was fantastic. This is Absolute Rally. Absolute Rally continues to be partnered by the Kielder Works team, who remain fully committed to the sport and are pioneers of the latest technology. Kielder cordless tools are tailored for all forms of competitive action. Go back to the future with the Kielder Works team. With regard to the drivers, John, that, that, that went through Boreham at the time, and obviously, you know, there was a, a young Malcolm Wilson who came into your life again a bit later on, which we'll probably come to a bit later on. But um, the drivers that came through, who were the who were the ones that perhaps maybe the easiest and maybe the hardest for their own reasons to work with? Um, they all had the different pluses and minuses. I think the most hardworking one of all of them was Carlos, Carlos Saints. Um, he was a forerunner in a lot of the things that the drivers do nowadays, the training, the things like that to get yourself sorted out. He was, he just never stopped working and, um, he never stopped thinking about stuff. And it wasn't just changing the car, changing this, changing that. It was everything. Um, I mean, he'd do a test and they'd test everything. They'd set the car up to get it all just as he wanted it. Time's good, and then he'd come in, so right, I'll do my last run. Um, can you go back to the set, the setting we started with? And everybody said, well, why that? I just want to make sure. And you go back to that setting, if you weren't careful, then you had to start all over again. Oh, well, I think that might have been a little better. It's not that he wasn't satisfied. He was always looking for that little extra bit of something to make himself competitive. And even down to aspects of my job, um, <clears throat> I, I would often get a phone call from him at the most obscure times, Sunday afternoon or something like that, and the phone would ring and Paul and my wife would pick it up and say, oh, it's him again. <laughs> but you know it's the weekend, you know. And you say hello there. He says, I've just been thinking, it, that service it, at the end of so-and-so stage, 
if we were to move it a bit further away, we could maybe have a bit longer to warm time. You know, and it's just little things like that that you say, yeah, okay. And it, very, very rarely did he ever mention anything that wasn't going to benefit not just particularly him, but the result. Um, I mean, you hear lots of stories. I know lots of stories. I'm not going to go into drivers wanting stuff that had no bearing whatsoever on the result. Carlos's was always to the ultimate. And, I mean, just a small story added on to that. Um, like I say, Pauline just to complain bitterly about him ringing. So when we had our Christmas party a few years later... Um, he was walking around him and Lewis introducing themselves and um, he came and he said hello John I said ah Carlos I said look this is my wife this is the lady that answers the phone for you on a Sunday <laughs> I said to Paul he says right go on tell him now what you've been telling me <laughs> and she looked and said oh it's alright you can ring any time I thought you what <laughs> so I, just, I got told then oh it's his eyes do you think do you think that's what Carlos kind of had it was the total package as opposed to may, maybe the hard uh, I suppose this is a clumsy way of asking the question was he was he more less natural as a driver than perhaps some others that could be named and that's why he worked so hard at it so it became the total package as opposed to just relying on pure talent Yes, I think that's probably a little bit true for that, to be fair. Because um, <clears throat> when we ran him one year, we had UR running as well. And he used to love to try and wind him up by just sort of sit laid back, going behind the back of the van for a fag at the service and all this. And Carlos would be, well, about two millimetres of this. And UR would say, are, are they all pointing the same way? <laughs> um, but Carlos... He was a very, very talented driver, but he always wanted more. He always wanted to get a better result and to get um, a, a higher result, a more consistent result. The biggest thing I could never really work out, but it did work, was the relationship between him and Lewis. Because, I mean, two opposites you've never, ever met. <clears throat> and yet, in the car, they got on like a house on fire. And you notice with a lot of these long-term relationships between drivers and co-drivers, I mean, you've just seen the thing now with um, Sebastian and Daniel Elena, et cetera. Um, you know, the work together, uh, they've got such a bond that it works a treat, and that used to be the same. Yet they got out the car at the end of the rally, Lewis went one way, normally to the bar, and Carlos went the other way, normally to the plane to go home. So, you know, there'd be nothing in common, apart from the fact they were Spanish. Wow, wow! As, at that point as well, I guess there was that was the we were going from the Group A car into. It seems like it. It seems odd because it still seems incredibly fresh to me. That was the beginning, of course, of you know when Carlos was there it was the World Rally program as well. We were just starting to get into the World Rally car specification as well, weren't we? Yeah, and then. <clears throat> Obviously, then um, the contract ended at Borum, went to M Sport just as that period started, just as they got the yeah the, the first, if you like, Escort World Rally car. And when that happened, having gone from this huge, you know, as I say, I called it Narnia before, this huge place which was you know had 
lots of things going on. They were developing different cars for different categories. I think even some of the race car, I don't know whether some of the race stuff went through there as well, but um, you went from that to effectively, and I, I mean this with love and respect, but at that, at this point, M Sport was basically a building on the side of Malcolm's house. That's true. I mean, um, Malcolm secured the contract to do it, and um, it's like everything. There's always <clears throat> good and bad, and the good thing was he got the contract. The bad thing was he got me as well. But um, <laughs> uh, he got the contract, and I went up to see him and did a deal with him, shook his hand, and he sort of said, right, I'll show you where the workshop is now. And he went downstairs, and there was this, uh, like, two-bay garage underneath his uh, house. Yeah, I said, this is it. <laughs> and literally went to that. Now, obviously, there, there was a, a lot of politics going on at Borum and a lot of stuff going on there that um, were not really, um, how shall I put it, going in the right direction to actually win a championship or to win events. And the one thing Malcolm had was total 100% passion that he was going to win. And <clears throat> I always remember one of the final meetings down at Borum when we were doing all the handover and all the paperwork, that sort of thing. Carlos was there. And um, he was actually questioning the same thing. Are you sure? Because he knew Malcolm by then. He said, are you sure that, you know, you're going to be able to start Monte Carlo in sort of uh, five months' time? Oh, sorry, five weeks' time. And Malcolm shook his hands and says, look, I'll give you my word. He said, forget your contract, forget everything else. I'll shake your hand. That is more than any contract. We will be there at the start in Reims on time. And literally, they worked 24 hours to get the cars ready and that included Malcolm he'd work in the office all day and then at 5 o'clock get out of his suit put his overalls on and go with the lads down in the workshop and work on the cars and he got to the point that when just before we were ready to leave to go to Reims the only sort of two people that hadn't been working these crazy hours was Phil Mills and myself because me and Phil worked there as coordinators so we drove Sierra Estate cars out with the rally cars in trailers behind us while everybody else went to bed. So that we went overnight down, took them to Reims. They all flew out the next day and had a, having had a night's sleep, including Malcolm, uh, in time for the start. And it turned out, Calvin said, I gave you my word, there's the cars. And that cemented a relationship with Carlos and Malcolm that, has been a, a strong point ever since. Was it, you know, I, I, I think everybody, you know, I, I, I guess, you know, the generations and stuff, you know, do think about M Sport as this big powerhouse. But, you know, I remember this period. Um, I don't know whether, how well you remember it, Ryan. Or you were, obviously, you were around the Pumas and stuff like that. So this must have been quite a, a time for you as well. Uh, yeah, I mean the the Puma side obviously still came out of out of Boreham, but I mean obviously watching what what went on at M Sport and and it was I think um, you know it was great for British rallying at the time as well because Malcolm obviously was a well known driver and for for him to to start to to build this team um, was an incredible story and then and then of course John Colin came on board. That's true. Um, I mean it was always. 
um, a, a relationship driven by Ford at that point because they were the major sponsor, they were the major backer, and they wanted uh, a British, it was Ford of Britain, they wanted a, a British household name uh, to promote the brand, to promote Ford, and it's them that really pushed to get Colin on, and it was them that um, negotiated his, uh, his contract and everything. His huge contract, I seem to remember <laughs> at the time. <laughs> at the time it was, yes. A uh, huge contract to come on board, so yeah, that was driven by them, and uh, I mean, I, I'd worked with Colin uh, to RED when he was still just getting up to speed, so I, I sort of knew him from that point. I've worked with Jimmy a lot, again, at RED, so we knew him and stuff, and um, it was nice to actually have him back. It was a different animal that came back to what we'd worked for before, know, though. You know what? I was just about to ask you what were the differences <laughs> between that young raw talent that was having gatepost latches welded to his back door <laughs> on cars to keep him going to the man that stepped into this, you know, all singing, all dancing, brangy rally car. Yeah, well, basically, we had a world champion. That was the difference. Yeah. And he, he knew what it took to win a world championship, um, knew what he wanted. And um, fortunately, he came in when the focus started. So he came into an era with a different type of car. So it wasn't like, oh, I used to have this with my old car. I used to have that with my old car. That didn't kind of gel. It was more a case of it was also totally new. That he started off with a clean sheet, but he obviously knew what he wanted out of the car. What What was he like, John, with regards to, obviously, because it was such a new car. I'm always fascinated by this, where you've got somebody who's so renowned for driving by the seat of his pants, but equally you're trying to get you know, drivers to give you feedback to improve this 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 new car because you know it was literally a, a drawing on a board, wasn't it? You know, for literally about it seems like six months before it was all announced, it was still a drawing. So to have somebody that kind of drives by the seat of the pants, what kind of feedback were you getting, or you know, were you getting lots of test drives? How did it work? Um, that's a really big, a really good question. That um, basically. Some drivers are fantastic car developers. Some drivers aren't. Uh, Colin isn't a fantastic car, or wasn't a fantastic car developer, but he could drive a car. Um, there's quite a few drivers, I won't go into all the names, that y you would want if you were going to start to develop a car from new, and that's what you needed. Now, you could always tell because whoever, when you went testing, whoever wanted to test last normally was the one that wasn't that good at developing a car. So he wanted the other drivers to have done that work. Now, no disrespect to Colin, he wasn't the world's best developer. He could drive a car. He knew what he wanted, but he could also jump into somebody else's car and uh, make it go quickly. I mean, a perfect example of this was the year that we ran at Borum uh, Francois Delacour and Bruno Thierry. Unfortunately, Bruno was definitely the second driver in all aspects, so he had to drive with Francois' settings, and he couldn't get his head around how Francois could drive a car like that. So if you look at his results, he never had a really brilliant result, apart from that one time in Corsica, um, because of the fact that he was running on settings that he didn't like. 
and the setup, the politics, everything else that went with it in those days meant it had to run uh, Francois settings. Wow. Well, I, I, I genuinely find that that, that, that that kind of stuff and the development side really, really yeah. interesting. But yeah. when we go through the drivers that, and, you know, I always kind of, and I think, right, we, we, we've both been guilty of this, John, but M Sport to me now is kind of a right to passage into the World Rally Championship. There's so many people that have been M Sport blessed, <laughs> shall we say, <laughs> yeah. and whether it's drivers, co-drivers, engineers, you know, what is it? Is it just, and again, with respect, is it just because it's, you know, you can pick up the phone and speak to somebody there and it's not this kind of, you know, multifaceted, multi-layered management structure or whatever. Uh, and it's still, you know, like a family business. What? It, why is it that it just seems to breed and, and kind of encourage, you know, different generations for the last 30 years through it and everybody seems to have worked there at some point? Um, very simple answer. One, oh, two words, Malcolm Wilson. Right, okay. That answers that. Basically, Malcolm is a strong believer in youth and up-and-coming drivers and experience. And you'll notice, you'll see, like, the young drivers they've got now, um, they're having crashes, bumps, bangs. He'll never talk them down, never sort of criticise or anything. He wants them to do that, to learn. Elfin did that four or five years ago. Now he jumps in the Toyota and he's right on the case, he's right on the button, he's pushing Auger, etc. Um, if you'd have switched this back now, sort of four years, you'd have thought Elfin is a second, you know, he's definitely a second string driver. He's never ever going to be at that pace. But it's all through work, experience, knowledge. And he's forever looking at youngsters um, it, it, he, you go into work on a Monday morning and he'd turn around and say, oh, I saw so-and-so, so-and-so won his class on the uh, Christmas stages, if you want for the one the better words. <laughs> and he'd seen results, he'd seen youngsters, and it wasn't just drivers, it was co-drivers, or, you know, what do you think of that young lad? Do you think, you know, and he's always looking for young people to to get on the ladder and this is why they have what they call the ladder of opportunity. That's why they want a card in every category. So once you start with Ford with a, a Focus, you, sorry, a Fiesta, you go on and on and up through all the ranks to eventually get to a World Rally car. Yeah, it, 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 I do. Again, I, I think it's such a wonderful story. And, and, you know, I think probably 30 years ago, it felt like everybody had worked a pro drive at some point. Now it's very much definitely everybody yeah. worked, worked it at M Sports at some point but can you remember the you know the, the, the pressures and stuff that, that come from you know having like to Colin and Carlos and people like and you know the the titles didn't quite come you know it took it took until we got to you know the era of Marcus Grunholm to get to the manufacturers was that more relief then as opposed to anything else um, yeah again we got very very close the year that Colin rolled it on the GB rally was very, very close that year. Um, it's one of these things. I mean, M-Sport have a fantastic reputation. Whenever there's a new category of a car comes out, they come out of the box running and bang. They've won so many rallies their first time with a new car. Um, 
then the other team's budgets unfortunately started to show in that they can spend a lot more money on development and catch up. The same thing happens if you get into a run of good results on a championship year. As you start going through the year, you start noticing that you're going to have to do this now, you're going to have to do that now to try and keep the, the team, the driver in that position to win the championship. And um, you got so many times, you got so close, and then something, if you like, out of our control that we haven't planned for, we haven't uh, factored in, etc., happens and robs you of it. And then the year, of course, um, when we won the championship, that was, of all places, New Zealand to win it. The furthest place away from M-Sport, which, again, um, if we could have won it and involved everybody at the workshop, that would have been the ideal scenario. As it happened, the year that we did uh, New Zealand, again, you're talking now about stuff that people take as second nature nowadays with Zoom and one thing or another, but we managed to get a webcam working from out of the service park to M-Sport, and everybody, well, everybody, most of the people have gone into M-Sport. They're taking pizzas and beers and stuff like that. So they were listening live when they cleared the final stage. And the fear, when you're watching the car go through the stage, you're watching it on the tracking system. If the radio cracks into live, that means there's a problem. And about two kilometers from the end, the radio cracked into life and everybody's heart missed a beat. And we could hear Timo rattling away in Finnish. And everybody saying, what's the matter, what's the matter? You know, thinking, there's something wrong, something wrong. They get to the end of the stage, he goes, okay, you've won the World Championship. Sorry, did I press the button too early? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd done it to wind us up because he knew we were all waiting. <laughs> and I won't tell you what language came out of the um, <laughs> web link from them. <laughs> but it, it just it just takes so much to, to to do it. And I must admit, I admire people like Volkswagen that have done it consistently year after year. Um, it takes such a lot of work and effort, and hundred percent from everybody in the team to actually get that championship. The driver's the guy at the pointed end, but it takes everybody else to actually do or give a hundred percent in order for him to do his bit. Now, we all hope that we see, with the, again, a, a regulation change, as you said, that uh, we see M-Sport back at the front next year. And um, the old saying that the uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. One rally we're going to see back in the championship um, is a, is a rally that you know well, a rally that you competed on, I think, with Jeff Field in the, the Acropolis Rally. Well, that goes back a few years, yes. <laughs> yes, I did with Jeff in uh, 82, I think. Uh, yeah, no, it'd be good to see that back, actually. Uh, it was always a really good event. It was always very, very well organised. Uh, um, Anita, the clerk of the car, she, she, how should I put it, she manages a whole team of men to organize the to run the event but she's the kingpin that makes the thing work and it's always been a real I mean it's been a favorite of mine plus the fact that it's nice and sunny and warm weather so that helps <laughs> I love it I love it yeah. Joe I'm, I'm gonna ask you uh and it's gonna I'm assuming it's gonna be a Ford but before we let you go I'm just really conscious of time for you as well but yeah one car one crew one rally 
Whew. Wow, that's quite a big ask. Um, possibly the Acropolis. There you go. <laughs> Ma, um, ooh, I can th- I can think of the car. Uh, Miko. Miko no. Hermanen. No, it wasn't. Sorry, no. I'm thinking of something else. The Estonian driver, and I've gone and forgotten his name. Oh, Mar- no, Mark, Marco, Marco Martin. Marco Martin, Marco Martin and B. 2003. When, when the bonnet came up. And he drove to the end of the stage with the bonnet up, still put the fastest time in. And they said, oh, the bonnet's come up, but we never believed until we saw the photos. <laughs> I think that's probably the one. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. John, uh, we could do another three podcasts with you, I'm sure, but we're going to leave it there for now because it's been wonderful I did, just to I listen. Warn you, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> there's, de- there's a there's a part two in this. There's definitely a part two in this. So, <laughs> thank you for your time, folks. That has been absolute rally for this week. We'll be back same time, same place. We need a podcast hold next week. Absolute rally, powered by the Kielder Works team. Spread the word and download the podcast every week.